I'm Rick Ganley, and it is time for the New Hampshire News Recap. Let's get into this week's top headlines. It has been hot out there this week. Temperatures have reached the mid-90s in many parts of the state day after day. And the forecast shows we're in for some similar weather over the weekend. The state has released its 10-year energy plan. So what does that mean for rising energy costs in New Hampshire? Well, here to talk about all of that and more are NHPR's Mara Hoplamazian and New Hampshire Bulletin's Amanda Goki. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Rick. Good to have you both here. Uh, Mara, you've been reporting on how climate change affects these kinds of heat waves that we've been experiencing. A recent report from state officials and UNH scientists projects summers in New England are going to continue to get hotter. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So, well, so far since 1901, temperatures statewide have increased already by an average of three degrees Fahrenheit. And fall and winter have been warming fastest. But the report also looked at cooling degree days, which is a measurement of how much warmer a day is than 65 degrees and found that there's already been a 74% increase in those since since 1971. But going forward, it's going to get hotter. There will be more days of extreme heat like we're experiencing right now. But New Hampshire state climatologist says it's important to keep in mind that how much hotter things get is still kind of up to us. In a high greenhouse gas emission scenario, New Hampshire could see up to 60 days above 90 degrees every single year. But in a lower emission scenario, that goes down by half. Okay, so still going, still heating up, but not quite as much if we can get some things under control. Now, New Hampshire does not necessarily have that infrastructure to support rising temperatures like this. Many people don't have air conditioning. School buildings across the state don't have AC either, many of them. What are, what are ways that folks can, can prepare for these hotter summers? Yeah, so well, first, it's, it's important to understand that extreme heat can be really dangerous. Extreme heat events are the most common cause of weather-related deaths, and it's especially dangerous for really old or really young folks, you know, for people who work or live outside. Before extreme heat events, the CDC and the EPA recommend making sure you're prepared at home. You know, you have a way to keep cool. You know where to go if you need a cool space. And those agencies also suggest people can contribute to their community's heat plan. So many municipal governments have a heat plan or are in the process of creating one. People can reach out to see what their, their local government's up to. But in the short term for now, you know, ways to mitigate those dangers are drinking lots of water, staying out of the sun, staying in a cool place, checking in on neighbors and friends. And if you don't have air conditioning, or a cool place to shelter, you can figure out where the nearest cooling center is by calling your city or your town hall. In Rockingham County, Project Cool Air is distributing air conditioners to folks whose health might be impacted by heat and who might not be able to afford cooling. So um, folks can get in touch with them through Portsmouth City Hall. And it's also important to note that heat impacts communities unequally. In cities, you know, buildings and pavements can absorb heat while trees and greenery can help other neighborhoods stay cool. And in Manchester, Nashua, for example, there's less trees on blocks with more low-income folks and people of color, according to treeequityscore.com. And excessive heat can also be a financial burden with lower-income households already spending proportionately more on energy costs. Well, yeah, and that brings up a good point. I mean, you, you know, obviously, if you are running air conditioning more and more, and you're on a fixed income, this is obviously going to impact your, 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 you know, what you're paying for your electric bill. How can people be, you know, be mindful of that in their usage and, and maybe save on that? Yeah, so hot days can have a big impact on the electricity grid. New England's grid experiences yearly peak demand in the summer when lots of people are running ACs. That can strain the grid, but ISO New England says this week demands they're experiencing are pretty typical. But to cut costs on an individual level, you know, closing windows and curtains can help lower the temperature indoors, turning off lights or not using the dishwasher or laundry machine on super hot days can help keep costs costs down. 
And granite staters can also use state energy efficient efficiency programs to get rebates on efficient appliances or more efficient air conditioners um, or to get help insulating and air sealing their homes to sort of keep the cool air in. Okay. Yeah. And the state just released its 10-year energy strategy this week, part of which focuses on addressing high energy costs. Amanda, I want to turn to you. Can you tell us about the purpose of the strategy and who uses it? Sure. So the 10-year energy strategy is a document. It basically sets goals for state energy policy looking forward at the next 10 years. It's meant to really address the biggest energy issues facing the state and provide a sort of high-level overview about where energy comes from currently, how that might change in, in the future as well. It's meant to ensure that energy in New Hampshire is affordable, safe, and reliable, as well as that it comes from a variety of sources. And all the, the while kind of balancing those goals um, with environmental protections. Um, the strategy is supposed to provide information and guidance for policymakers, giving them recommendations about how to achieve the goals that are laid out in the strategy. So, Maura, what are some of those major goals the state's laying out there? Yeah, so as Amanda said, the strategy is really focused on the cost of energy, which is high in New Hampshire. The Department of Energy says the main goal is to pursue cost-effective energy policies, but another big through-line is this market-based approach to energy policy. So the Department of Energy basically wants markets to do their work without quotas or mandates from the government, something that advocates say could be difficult because the energy sector is so highly regulated. Um, the, the department or the strategy says government intervention in energy markets should be limited, justifiable, and technology neutral. So they say policy shouldn't try to preserve old technologies artificially, like maybe coal or oil. And it also shouldn't try to create a market share for newer technologies artificially, like maybe solar or wind. Um, and then another uh, through line or I guess goal the strategy talks about is protecting New Hampshire's interest in regional energy issues. So we're all on this grid with all of New England and other states have these greenhouse gas reduction mandates and other kinds of programs to speed up the energy transition. But uh, the strategy says the state will not be taking that approach and says New Hampshire should support regional policies that protect it from the possibility of costs associated with that approach in, in other states. Well, Amanda, can you talk more about how, how the strategy would focus on, on energy costs specifically? Because there are many factors that would influence energy prices. We're a small state. You know, we're thinking, obviously, there's, there's, there's forces on the international level even. So what does the strategy propose that can be done on the state level? Yeah. So as Mara mentioned, the strategy basically says that above all else, its priority is focusing on the cost of energy. So that goal kind of informs all of the other sort of list of 10 goals that it outlines. It you know explains that New Hampshire's energy costs are among the highest in the nation and points to data from 2019 showing that the average person in New Hampshire pays over $4,000 uh, for energy in a typical year. And as Mara also mentioned, that burden is really hitting people on a lower fixed income in the state the hardest. Um, in terms of what New Hampshire can do to keep energy costs down, the plan basically says the state should limit government intervention in energy markets. So it's more a list of things that the state shouldn't do as opposed to what they should do. Um, so things like letting markets determine where the state gets its energy from based on what's least expensive. Um, it says the New Hampshire government should avoid things like energy mandates um, and allow for innovation. Um, the strategy argues against giving subsidies that would favor one kind of energy over another. Um, and advocates have pointed out that that's problematic just given the tight regulations governing energy markets and how many subsidies are already at play, especially at the federal level, as you mentioned, Rick. Yeah. Um, 
The strategy also endorses energy efficiency, which can reduce how much energy businesses and households in the state are using, things like weatherizing buildings or installing energy efficient lights and appliances. Mara, does the, does the state strategy actually address climate change specifically? Yeah, so the strategy acknowledges climate change. It says it's a real escalating issue with economic, environmental, and public health impacts. It also says energy systems can contribute to climate change. But advocates I spoke with said it's lacking in specific recommendations about how to address that reality that it's acknowledging. The strategy envisions in this respect to limited government intervention, saying the best way to reduce emissions and protect from climate change is to achieve a market where low emission resources are competitive without help from the government. Though it also acknowledges the cost of renewables has come down and those resources will continue to grow in importance. It is Morning Edition here on NHPR. We're recapping this week's news with New Hampshire Bulletin's Amanda Goki and NHPR's Mara Hoplamazian. Uh, Amanda, you've been working on a series of stories on how New Hampshire communities are already seeing the effects of climate change. A large focus of the series is on rising sea levels. So what did you hear from homeowners and, and town officials right on the seacoast? Yeah, absolutely. So both homeowners and town officials on the seacoast are really in some ways on the front lines of climate change. It's really already changing their day-to-day routines. It's shaping the things that they're spending money on the way and the way they are thinking about the future. And they're already taking a lot of actions to adapt to this changing reality. So the homeowners that I spoke with We're talking back to just a time, you know, 10 or 15 years ago um, when flooding was caused by basically severe, severe storms. And now things like just a high tide can create nuisance flooding um, as often as every as every month. Um, That can, you know, be problematic because it can ruin cars. The salt water is really corrosive. It sort of eats away at the foundation of of people's homes, um, you know, in a big storm back, I think in 2017, there was, you know, it creates issues for emergency vehicles. So when a fire truck had to drive through this high storm water, it it created serious damage to the town's emergency infrastructure. And, and people are worried about things like getting getting trapped at, at home. One resident I spoke with, um, his daughter had been living with him while she was pregnant and they they were seriously wondering, you know, if, the, if there was some sort of medical emergency that occurred during her presidency her pregnancy and she had to get out um, while there was a storm, how would how would they manage that? Um, and looking forward into the future, the Rockingham Planning Commission had just done a study finding, you know, as many as 15 out of the 22 roads that they studied might be impassable in, in the future. And I know the buildings of Strawberry Bank Museum in Portsmouth, for example, have been flooding as a result of, of rising sea levels. And some of those buildings, of course, date back to the 1600s. How has the museum been coping with that? The flooding at Strawberry Bank is is really striking. Um, I spoke with one of the facilities managers there, and he told me that the buildings are regularly seeing flooding in the basements of between 16 and 24 inches, which is pretty incredible to to think about. And that that happens for much of the of the winter months. And again, that's driven by the sea the sea level is rising, and so the salt water is kind of pushing the groundwater up from the bottom. But water is also entering the buildings from the surface. Um, you know, when there's a when there's a lot of rain, the water kind of pools up on the front lawn of the Strawberry Bank Museum. Um, You know, and part of that is to do with the history of that site, which actually used to naturally be a waterway until it was filled in in about the night in the like around 19. 
Um, and so that still is a place where water naturally, naturally gathers. And it creates this problem for these historic buildings because some of them, a lot of them are, are built currently with brick and brick actually wicks water. So mm. it, it's bringing it from the basement up into sometimes the first floor of these houses and, and causing a lot of damage to the structures. So in one of the buildings, the museum actually already had to remove a part of the building's basement. It was this sort of summer kitchen. There was a big hearth. It was kind of this place where people in the summertime used to cook in the basement but it had to be replaced with a slab of granite just because that granite would sort of halt the water in its tracks as opposed to carrying it up into the building. And going into the future, you know, the, the museum is, is really contemplating potentially losing a lot of the basements of these historic buildings and with it, you know, the history that, that goes along with it. Absolutely. Well, we have to end it there, but uh, I do want to ask you both before we leave, um, uh, Amanda and Mara both, what else you're working on right now, what you are expecting to re be reporting on in the next week or two. Uh, Mara, let's start with you. Well, I think I'll, I'll be paying attention to how local and state leaders are taking the information and the energy strategy, what they do with it. Um, I'm also working on a couple of profiles that are kind of fun. One about a woman who catches mosquitoes for the Man Manchester Department of Health. So I'm excited about that one. <laughs> it's an interesting job. Yeah, absolutely. How about you, Amanda? Yeah, so I am going to be looking into a little bit about what's going on um, with Gunstock, the the commissioners there, and the um, big resignation at the the ski the ski area. And then I'm also working on a story about seed saving in the state and sort of how that is a climate resiliency measure and sort of why people are turning to that in the in the wake of the pandemic and how that's kind of spurred spurred people to want to start saving their own seeds. So much climate-related news as of late. Thank you both so much. NHPR's Mara Hoplamazian and New Hampshire Bulletin's Amanda Gokey. You can find more of their work, by the way, at nhpr.org and newhampshirebulletin.com. Thank you both. Thank you, Rick. Thanks. Have a great weekend. And by the way, if you missed part of today's segment or if you want to catch up on previous weeks, you can find the New Hampshire News Recap wherever you happen to get your podcasts. We'll be here next Friday, by the way, with more top headlines, as always. I'm Rick Ganley. This is NHPR.